the enormity of a diagnosis like that. And it, it, it is an enormous weight and heaviness. I remember sitting, and I could cry about it now, sitting in the car park waiting to go in, thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to walk in there. They're going to tell me I've got secondary breast cancer, and that is my life's over. And people do think that, don't they? And, and, and I knew that life wouldn't be over, but life would never be the same at all and never could be the same. Hello and welcome to the My Breast, My Health podcast. My name is Tasha Gendemihaja and I'm your host and I'm also a breast cancer surgeon. The aim of this podcast is to help you navigate through and beyond a breast cancer diagnosis. Thank you so much for joining me. Now that was Jo Taylor who you heard right at the beginning of this podcast episode and she is my guest today. Jo is a passionate advocate for those affected by breast cancer, whether that's primary or secondary breast cancer. She's very active in the breast cancer community and she's pushing for change in the world of policymaking, accessibility to trials, as well as fighting for data collection. Jo has created websites as resources for patients, created her own retreat, and she has even written a book. And she has done all of this while she herself has had to deal with her own primary and secondary breast cancer diagnosis. Throughout our conversation, Jo's passion shone through. And you can really tell that Jo has made it her mission to advocate for patients around the world and help them through their breast cancer diagnosis. It was an absolute pleasure to have Jo on the show, and I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with her. And no doubt you will too. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Jo Taylor. Hi, Jo. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. How are you? Um, really well, thank you, Tasha, and thanks for inviting me. It's really good of uh, you. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, and I've been meaning to get you on to the show for some time now. So, you know, thank you so much for coming on. No doubt many listeners out there know who you are, but for those who don't know who you are, would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, so um, I'm Jo Taylor. I live in Saddleworth on the outskirts of Manchester, um, 14 years ago, I was diagnosed with primary breast cancer. I was 38 on maternity leave. My daughter was four months, sorry, five months old, and my son was nearly two and a half. And uh, we were living the normal kind of life, you know, both working. I had two children. It was like I had a daughter that was the icing on the cake. Right. And five months later, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, which was for me, a massive shock because I always thought that breast cancer was something that you got because it was in the family. And it ended up being a very steep learning curve to find out that that isn't the case. Um, it's only a small percentage that are genetic. Most of the people get it just because they get it. They're unlucky. And unfortunately, I was unlucky. And so I was diagnosed with HER2 positive, just a standard type of stage two, middle of the road kind of breast cancer. And but because of my age and, you know, it was a small ish, it was like two, around about two centimetres, the, the, the team kind of threw everything at me 
Um, so I had surgery, but I actually fought for a different type of surgery. And in fact, I changed surgeon three days after I was diagnosed. I was seeing somebody who'd had a different reconstruction. And remember, it's 14 years ago. So it was yeah. quite new to have, well, not new, but but well, I guess it might have been a latimus dorsi, but an immediate reconstruction as well. So and skin saving. So okay. I had a mastectomy and a, and a latimus dorsi at the same time you know, had the surgery, that was a, a long kind of trek, you know, 11 days in hospital, took about 11 hours to actually perform the surgery at that point. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's a long so time. It was, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, recovery from then and having a, you know, a young family as well, that was pretty difficult staying away from, um, you know, the, the children. And we didn't, take them into you know they didn't they weren't brought into hospital because I didn't kind of want them to see what I was you know mum was like at the time so yeah, yeah had the surgery had uh, you know the standard six uh, rounds of chemotherapy had radiotherapy for four weeks standard 20 fractions or whatever it is and then was put on tamoxifen and I was also on Zelodex to give me an early menopause so I went from maternity leave to menopause kind of Gosh. <laughs> straight away within yeah. six seven eight months so I mean you know obviously with with having chemotherapy as well that stopped me having any any periods or anything but still they wanted me on two and a half years of of Zolodex to make sure that the ovaries had shut down you're quite young weren't you when you when yeah you were diagnosed. I mean yeah, that, was, that was yeah that's really young so obviously I wasn't in any kind of you know I didn't have any regular mammograms or anything like that because and I wasn't high risk at all I mean lifestyle wise I've always had a really good you know lifestyle as in you know I don't drink very much don't smoke exercise uh, always watch my weight always dieted so for me I wasn't of that kind of risk factor what you mm. would think of with cancer but then again you know you have triathletes and people who were you know world-class tennis players who um developed breast cancer so um yeah it was yeah. it was a shock to say the least so you so you had your treatment and then you know you were on tamoxifen and everything yeah um you recovered well from from that um episode and then you something stirred you on to to create a website is that right yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is, when you're young like that, and you're, you go to clinics, and you kind of find that you are quite young. Um, most of the people are of, you know, over 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. And I sat in clinics thinking, where are all the younger women? You know, where are the people like me with children? And it, it kind of started me off thinking, you know, I, I had a, an issue with the surgery because I didn't have, I wasn't offered the surgery that I wanted. So I then had to go and find someone who would do something that I wanted them to do. And thankfully, within my own, in within GM Cancer, um, you know, I was able to find somebody who did different surgery. But then it, it kind of made me think about why didn't I get a choice? Why mm. didn't I get this information at the time? And that was always there in the back of my mind, thinking, you know, there must be other people who are not getting getting this 
information. And in fact, I did meet other younger, when I was in hospital, um, I met other younger women, people who had, uh, I met one woman who had a tram flat, really didn't, it was diep. Um, and she really was upset about, you know, she didn't really understand what she was having. Mm. And then again, it, it, it kind of made me think about reconstruction and why why do people not get, you know, all this information at the time? You get so much information, but actually when when you're in the middle of cancer, you're not really thinking enough about the choices that you were making at the time for you as a person long term. You know, yes. I mean I, I had what I had because it was it was the symmetry that I wanted. They wouldn't let me have um my other breast taken off. That was right. basically what they said. No, we don't remove a healthy breast. And you know, since then we we've got a big um a big change in, in people who want um double mastectomies and staying flat even without yes. any reconstruction. So you know, that was in my mind. If they if they would have been able to say to me, do you want to go flat and not have any breasts? I possibly would have said, yeah. But I went through this massive surgery that actually really affected me a lot because I couldn't even hold my daughter for about seven weeks oh. after surgery, you know, after I got yeah. out of surgery. So thinking back at all this, it kind of made me think about, you know, everybody else should have this kind of choice. They should have the information. They should talk to the patients, to talk to other people, peer support. And that kind of got me thinking about creating a website. So it was actually eight years ago that, um, so six years into my diagnosis, and life had moved on and, you know, things had uh, got back to kind of, you know, the normal, whatever normal is. Yeah, you know, your new um, normal. Your new normal, Yeah. Um, it got back to that normal, you know, I was, I was running again, I was exercising, I was able to do, you know, everything what I really was able to do before, but obviously you've got certain side effects and things happening, but you know, as far as I was concerned, I was, I was fine and I was recovered and I was a survivor. Um, but obviously it it got to a point where I I wanted to help people really. And I started gathering, (laughs) I'm a bit of a list maker. Okay. Um, I've got. I think I've got a bit of you know a, a thing with lists, and I like. Do you like to your to-do lists. list as well? Oh my god! I've just rewritten my to-do list. Have you? Okay. <laughs> Gets rewritten every day, every other day. You know, <laughs> see if I could tick something off. But yeah, um, so I, I wrote lists of links, people who were helping, things that were helping me, uh, diet, exercise, whatever it was, wigs. Um, you know, menopausal things, all these kind of stuff. I kind of had around in my head thinking, it's great having a, a leaflet from the hospital, but actually it's not reality. Yeah. The, real, the reality is totally different than than what a leaflet provides you. So, so that's what I, I kind of wanted to give in a website. It was kind of me not talking on a podcast because podcasts were out then, <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, it, it was me kind of speaking in my language, um, you know, basic kind of understanding of, you know, this is what I feel and I've thought and writing a blog, right, you know, giving information to people so that I can signpost. And it was basically a one-stop shop of everything about breast cancer from yeah. 
kind of the start to, you know, further near, you know, secondary breast cancer and, and, and you know, what you have to deal with then. So, yeah, I actually developed it into a website. I started writing content and um, met a chap through what was called meetups. And it was giving you a story and getting people to kind of back you in a way. Right. People were people went to, to actually get backing for for kind of projects and various things. And I was there at this meetup with with another person that I was working with on a, a word of mouth mammography e-network. It was called the Women Group. And that was run by Salford University. And I was uh, on the group as a patient advocate, as somebody who had had a lived experience, just to give kind of advice as a patient perspective. And uh, so I was invited to this meetup, which was, um, I was giving my story. And then uh, there were a couple of other people in the group as well that were giving the story in relation to the women group and what they were doing. And after I had quite a few people contact me, people who wanted to help me. Okay. And one person gave me his details, but he actually contacted me the day after. He he followed me, I think, on Twitter, found my website, emailed me and said, I want to help you. I don't want you to pay me. Um, I've also got a hereditary disease that I'm doing a similar thing for. And he said, what you're doing is very, very similar to what I want to do. So I want to help you. And we've been that's friends nice. ever. We've been friends ever since. And he's, oh, my, we- really nice. he's my web designer. Oh, okay, so, brilliant. Yeah. So, so Jay's still with me. He, you know, we talk every week or so. Pretty good friends now. And um, yeah, he div- he created the, the 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 website, but I obviously filled the content. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was um, it was a, a really good meeting. That <laughs> so, was very um, lucky, wasn't it, to, to meet somebody like that? Yeah, I'm sure he was extremely helpful in developing your website, which is ABC Diagnosis. And you know, for yeah. those who haven't been um, on it, or do definitely check it out because you have so much content on there, Joe. It's amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and and then yeah. one of the things that I developed, and and I think you probably will talk about this anyway, is the infographic. Yes. Um, yes. And, no. Definitely. Yeah. So th- those infographics are amazing, and I remember. Uh, you know, it was some years ago, and I think I remember you developing them. And you know, when when I saw them, I thought that's such an amazing um, thing to create because it's so powerful and it's so impactful yeah. and it's so easy. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's, it's so easy um, to understand. Yeah. So, do you want to talk about those infographics? Yeah, of course. What happened was I I actually went to a, a conference at, at my hospital at the Christie. At the conference, I went as a patient at the time because I, I had ABCD then and I went as a patient to see what it was about. And it was a secondary breast cancer day. So it was people who had secondary breast cancer talking about, uh, sorry, clinical people talking about how to deal with your disease, um, various issues to do with your disease, diet, exercise, again, all these things that kind of matter, exercise, what they were pushing, you know, these are the things that you need to do. And yeah. so people could ask questions. And it was obviously a, an, an audience there as well of secondary breast cancer people. And w- one of the talks was about red flag symptoms. And this was my clinical nurse specialist who was talking about this. And I'd also asked my oncologist um, about this in the past. And I said to her after, why do you not share this information with primary patients? Because really, 
and isn't this cat before the horse? Um, yeah. You know, we're kind of back to front here. We're, we should be talking about this with primary people when, you know, bef- before they develop secondary breast and don't even understand or know what that means. And she looked at me and kind of stood there and went, Joe, the issue is it's too scary. And I kind of stood mm. back and went, too scary? You want to be in my position? That's scary. Yeah. You know, it, and, I, yeah. and I just couldn't, I could not fathom how or why this wasn't, you know, kind of everybody was talking about it. And yeah. then I found that everybody seemed to be like that. I talked to charities. Charities said, oh, no, can't do that. No, it's not good to explain that to people. Don't really want to know. It was like we were a dirty little secret, you mm. know. And these are, these are the infographics um, to explain to people what secondary breast cancer or metastatic breast cancer yeah. signs are, aren't they? So what, what they are, yeah, I'll explain that to start with. Um, it's... It's um, so you've got ductal uh, breast cancer and lobular breast cancer, and the lobular breast cancer has come after the ductal one. Um, didn't realize I needed that, but it metastasizes in different areas, and they're just basic uh, A4 pieces of paper with a man and a woman on, because obviously men get breast cancer too, um, and it points to the areas where you would get metastatic disease for each breast cancer type. You know people knowing and understanding where you will metastasize. So, you know, with ductal, it's brain, liver, lungs, bones is the main one, and um, at lymph nodes. So it was pointing to there and, 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 and sharing as well signs and symptoms, so red flag symptoms. So, you know, if you're having headaches, if you're, you know, unbalanced, you know, there's, there's something wrong there. Yeah. Um all these kind, kinds of things and just simple infographics so that what I found as a patient is that it, it's easy to go past written, lots of written information, and it's easier to look at, you know, a graphic which just yes. bits, tells you basically what, what's happening. And that's the way that I looked at it. And I found that sharing that information and then it, it developed into you know, like I said, the lobular one as well, sharing that information with people. People have come back to me, patients, who have said, I've been to my clinician and I've been to, or I've been to my GP. They didn't realise that it was secondary breast cancer. I've been re-diagnosed with secondary right. breast cancer because I took the infographic and said, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what it says on this piece of paper you know, I need a scan or, you know, you need to check this out. Mm. And, you know, within two weeks, one time I had four people contact me and say, it is a good job that I took my, you know, the infographic to my GP, my oncologist, whoever it was, because I've been re-diagnosed. It just goes to show that, you know, what you what you are doing and what you have done uh, and continue to do has helped so many people because these infographics, I've seen them and they're fantastic and they're very simple, but they're powerful. And they're, I think you're right. It goes beyond the jargon of just written text, yeah. which can be overwhelming. But if you just see an infographic, then you can think, oh, actually, yeah, you know, do I have bone pains or do I have a headache or yeah. um, whatever these symptoms may be? It just reminds people that actually just think about these places yeah. and it just brings it to the fore of people's minds because you're right. I don't think 
us as clinicians talk about these red flags enough with patients. And you as a patient would have, I'm sure, wanted to know what signs and symptoms to look out for. And if we don't tell you, then how are you supposed to know, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're trying to get on with your life. And I think it also fits into the FCR, the fear of cancer return, that, you know, if if you're not aware of these things, like you could get a a pain in your in your heel and somebody with primary breast cancer who've not been told about signs and symptoms might think oh it's secondary breast cancer in my heel because yeah. they don't know numerous people have said to me well yes it because it comes back in the other breast doesn't it or your same breast yeah. um well yes it can do but that could be a local or you know you know a local reoccurrence but yeah. also it could be secondary breast cancer somewhere else in your body you know, yeah. it doesn't come back in your breast. And I think that, again, the wording secondary breast cancer and advanced, uh, you know, because the, the, there are numerous ways to explain it. Stage yes. four, advanced, secondary, uh, metastatic, you know, and, and se- but saying secondary breast cancer, they think it's in the second breast or right, do you know yeah. what I mean? That that's, yeah. the, that's the mentality what people have. I've had so many right. women who just think that, Oh, it just comes back in your breast. Yeah. They have no idea that it comes back somewhere right. else in your body. So, yeah. you know, I, it, it really is to me a duty of care for clinicians to be telling patients about this. You know, it's no good sending people off into, you know, skipping into the sunset, yeah. you know, five years later. Oh, yeah, I'm cured, you know, for them bang, you know, six months later or two years later or five years later for them to develop secondary breast cancer and have no idea because that's what's happening. Um, I had a friend who was um, a a Met Up UK advocate. She died last year and she had a five-year follow-up and within six months she'd metastasized, you know, Mm. and and developed secondary breast cancer. Had no real idea that this this could happen, you know. And, And then you go to conferences and you hear about conferences and they're saying like HER2 positive breast cancer, it can metastasize up to 20 years later. You know, so where is that information for people that yeah. actually they should be on the radar and GPs should have them on the radar as well because this is the disconnect that there is. Uh, uh, you know, they don't, even though they communicate, they don't, they don't know about the issues with cancer. You yes. know, they're not specialists in cancer. So if you yeah, go no, with yeah. a, you know, and this again, a, another friend who died last year, her original issue was she went to the GP with pain in her stomach and it ended up pain in her liver. And But the GP said to her, you drink too much. And she actually had right. metastatic breast cancer in the liver. This has got to change. And that's why I'm so passionate about the infographics. And I mean, recently what's happened in, in Greater Manchester is that they've included a basic infographic in what's called an end of treatment summary report when you've got primary breast cancer before you kind of not signed off but you know before you have before the end of your treatment you know you you have a review and they give you this document as a um, information to see what you've had done what treatments what surgery blah 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 and then that also goes to your GP so the infographics in there, so that it opens a discussion. And I think that is 
again, the problem that clinicians have, it's how to have that discussion about risk of recurrence. That is the way to do it, I feel. I think that's a really good idea, actually, Mm. because where I work, uh, we have we have an open access follow up service. Yeah. And so, you know, women traditionally would have had a a clinic, a clinical follow up every year for five years. After your five years, you're, you know, you're let go and discharged back to the community with an open access follow up service. You don't have that clinical yearly follow up. You still have your mammogram, but you don't have a clinical follow up. But what you do have is like what you said, you have you have an interview, which is a very thorough discussion about, you know, you go through your, your the summary of your treatment, what to look out for, um, any holistic needs you m- might have. Yeah. But I think you're right, that would be a really good time to highlight, um, you know, what to look out for um, in terms of, you know, the, the signs and the symptoms and the red flags of, um, you know, secondary breast cancer or metastatic breast cancer. So absolutely, you know, I yeah. think that's a really, that's a really good yeah. uh, time to do it. Yeah. But when you, so, you know, you had your primary breast cancer diagnosis and then you had your treatment. Were you forewarned about what to look out for secondary breast cancer or no. not? Because you weren't. No, okay. no. no. <laughs> I was at a different hospital. Um, right. So within Greater Manchester again, but yeah, they they didn't really explain. I mean, it was only because of the work that I was doing and then, you know, looking at information mm-hmm. um, on websites, you know, signposting, all this kind of stuff that I found the information. And, and also being a, a, a patient who's involved in social media, because I was on Twitter, I was talking to American advocates and because they were so passionate about the issues with secondary breast metastatic breast cancer, as they call it over there, that I learned a lot from them and, you know, made great friends over there, lost a a lot of friends in America who had metastatic breast cancer, um, but learned lots from them, you know, and understanding the disease and the the symptoms and the issues that that they have. And, And again, this awareness, and they all love the infographic. You know, yeah. I've had people from Canada, America, um, you know, saying, why can't we have this? You know, um, yeah. we we want this kind of information. You know, we don't really get it here. You're very proactive in doing your own research and learning about things and getting all that information and gathering all, all the data and all the literature out there. Did that help you diagnose yourself with your recurrence? Yes, it well, it, it did and it didn't. What happened with me was, again, because I was involved with, um, with social media, it was actually a friend who is part of the BCCWW, which is Breast Cancer Chat Worldwide. Over in America, they've got BCSM, which is Breast Cancer Social Media, and that had been running for a number of years. But we found, because it was at 2 o'clock in the morning, Um, American, you know, we had to be up at two o'clock to actually listen or take part in this an hour chat. Um, We decided, there were five of us who decided to create our own chat on a Tuesday night. So we we still hold them chats and Julia, who runs the BCCWW account on Twitter, um, you know, she's still running it now. But yeah, five of us developed this into why don't we do it and do it for the whole of the world and we'll have it at nine o'clock GMT so that even if people are in Australia 
or America or anywhere in the country, sorry, the world, can dial into this and participate. So so that's what, what we created. And it was one of the friends who was part of that actually messaged me directly and said, I'm really worried. I've got these lumps in my neck and said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I've got secondary breast cancer. I said, well, you need to go and get it checked out. And she said, yeah, 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 I'm getting it checked out. And then automatically, what did I do? I went and felt my neck. And even though I'd been going, I had regular, never had a scan, but I'd always have regular checks and, you know, they check the breast area, check under your arms, check your neck area. So they felt for lumps and bumps in your body. So every six months I'd see my, my surgeon every year and my oncologist every year and it'd alternate every six months, if you know what I mean, a rolling. Yeah. So so I'd see somebody every six months, but obviously not picked up on these. And these lumps I just found and I found, found one and then I found two and then I found four. And I in your neck? In my neck, yeah, left-hand side of the neck. So just where the, um, what's it called, the bone there, the clav- is it clavicle? The clavicle, your collarbone. Yeah, collarbone. So it was just there near the collarbone. And obviously immediately I'm thinking, this isn't good. But I, I talked to a few friends. To there were, there were three friends who I had at the time, two who had secondary breast cancer and one who just had a reoccurrence. And I ended up, because they weren't all on, on, on social media, uh, and WhatsApp wasn't available then. So we just had emails. So I had like a group email, the four of us kind of talked. And I said, you know, what could it be? Could it be a local reoccurrence? Or do you think it's a distant one? Do you think I've got Mets? You know, and it was all this kind of stuff. Anyway, ended up going, having the, you know, tests, had a biopsy and um, a scan. And it came back two weeks later, I think it was. And yeah, had a metastatic disease. So it was, I had a numerous lymph nodes in the neck. And then I had what's called, and you'll know this, this term, oligometastatic disease in the sternum. So I right. just had two small spots in the sternum of the early bone um, metastatic secondary breast cancer. So that was kind of, you know, there's good and there's, this was what I was told, it's good and it's bad news. It's bad yeah. news that it's secondary breast cancer, but actually it's quite good news because it's just in your neck and it's just in your, in in your, your sternum. sternum. Yeah. And how, how did you get <laughs> Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't mm, it? Because yeah. obviously you don't want to hear that, but equally no. you think, well... But I, I obviously yeah. I knew I knew the the enormity of a diagnosis like that, and it, it it is an enormous weight and heaviness. I remember sitting, and I could cry about it now, sitting in the car park waiting to go in, thinking, "Oh my God, I'm going to walk in there. They're going to tell me I've got secondary breast cancer, and that is my life's over." Mm. And people do think that, don't they? And yeah, and and I knew that life wouldn't be over, but life would never be the same at all and never could be the same because I knew the statistics. I knew that, you know, two to three year median life expectancy. I had friends who just made it to two years and died. I had friends who were living longer than that. So I wanted to do everything and and that's why prior to that, I did try and do everything possible to help me 
to live as long as I possibly could and as fit as I could because I do think that fitness and health and diet does affect the way that you deal with with everything and the way that even you know I carried on exercising all the way throughout um, the last seven years really but even when you know my oncologist said because I then changed oncologist by the way I I wasn't happy with what I was told about um, how they wanted to deal with the cancer and um, I went with a different oncologist because he gave me better hope um, that he could get me another seven years actually that's what he said I'll give you 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 can get another seven years and he can live at least another seven years if you do what we feel is best which is xyz so I I, I followed his what he wanted me to do and I had progesterone acceptin um, and a braxane chemotherapy because I'm I'm allergic to taxol so that's why they put me on a braxane did you get any surgery at all um, at the time, no, but I did ask and I said to the previous oncologist, can I not have these neck nodes removed? And the the surgeon who was due to retire said, no, um, mm-hmm. oh, no, we can't do that because you'd get facial paralysis yeah. and, oh, you'll get all these, you know, symptoms, what he told me about, which sounded horrendous. And I thought, oh, my God, no, I don't want that. Don't want yeah. a dro- droopy mouth and blah blah blah. Yeah. yeah. But then two years later, well, a year later, um, I found out that well, the, the the nodes actually came back a year later after I'd had chemotherapy, progesterone septin. I was still on that, but the nodes did come back. And but then my then oncologist sent me to a head and neck surgeon who said, "Oh, Joe, we'll whip them out. Don't worry about that." So I said, yeah, but what about facial paralysis? And he went, I don't know what you're talking about. That won't happen. (laughs) Okay. You had surgery then? I had surgery on the neck, yeah. So I had um, a full neck resection. Wow. And, um, I mean, you you know, and it's touch wood, there's been nothing come back there. I had radiotherapy on it after that as well. But then a year after that, um, I was doing... I was doing CrossFit, lifting heavy weights. <laughs> right. Oh, no. My oncologist is going to kill me. I've got this pain in my chest. And I'd had a CT scan. And he came back all jolly. Oh, CT scan. It's Everything's fine. I'm going, yeah, but I've got this pain in my chest. Why have I got that? Oh, we'd better send you for a PET scan. And literally showed up like a Belisha beacon. There was all oh, act- no. activity in there, which then I ended up ha- seeing a friend of well it was a it, it wasn't a friend she wasn't a friend at the time but she's become a friend but this was a patient who was under my oncologist in a different clinic and she was she just found out somebody who would operate on her sternum mets right and he said do you want to speak to her and I said yeah <laughs> so I went to speak to her and she said she told me everything about it and said why don't you go and see the um, the surgeon, cardiothoracic surgeon in uh, Withenshaw, right. and went to see him, pleaded kind of with my life, I've got two children, I need to stay alive, yeah. um, you will do this for me, won't you? Yeah, and he did come back and said, well, because you're fit, 
you're healthy, you've, you know, you're doing everything kind of right as well. And uh, not necessarily that that is what everybody does, but because of, of that, I think it added to the weight of, I think you would survive and yes. do pretty well from this huge, massive surgery, what I'm going to give to you. Yes. Which was literally remove most of two thirds of my sternum and replace it with a composite piece of plastic. Gosh, <laughs> like, it's like open heart like, surgery nearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it on the TV. In fact, my the, the this friend who'd had it done was in, you know, that kind of uh, area anyway. And she sent me a paper with a pic with pictures. <laughs> oh my God. Really I'm not oh having God. that done, am I? Is it good? Yeah. Did, so did you see it before your surgery? Yes, I did. <laughs> That's very brave of you. I know, wow. yeah. I kind of couldn't miss it when I was whipping through this information. <laughs> and it came up with these pictures and I just kind of looked thinking, oh, I don't, don't really want to see that. Yeah, you can't unsee that now. <laughs> don't want to see it, yeah. It sounds like, you know, you've had, I mean, the next surgery sounds quite extensive. And obviously, yeah. now, you know, you had your sternum. Um, essentially yeah. re, re, removed and you've got yeah. like a, an amazing new stone now yeah. yeah a plate I mean that's like major stuff isn't it oh massively huge stuff yeah I mean it was a seven hour uh surgery and I was in ICU for well three days but I should have only been in there 24 hours but they didn't have a bed somewhere else right. but I mean I, I got really good you know one well two to one kind of you know yes. a nurse looking after two people Amazing kind of, you know, nursing staff who were doing everything they possibly could. But literally 24 hours after, I said to them, please get me up out of the chair. Because yeah, this other yeah. friend is also completely mental um, with exercise. And she said, Joe, what you need to do is, you, uh, 24 hours later, I need you to be stood up, marching on the spot. Um <laughs> so that you're getting your body moving because otherwise you'll be in there for a long time. Yeah. And I was in there five days. That's long. <laughs> there, were women, there were women who'd been in there four weeks. Oh, really? Well, yeah. that's nothing then if it's five that's days compared to four weeks. Oh, my goodness, yeah. And they, they like looked at me saying, how are you able to do this? I went, well, I don't know. but You're motivated and you're fit, that's why. Yeah, I do think it, it's got a part to play, definitely. I mean, you've just got to look at prehabilitation, you know, and, yeah. re, and rehab and, and everything what's coming out now with exercise oncology. It's massive, yeah, you know, and, and, and there's definitely a place for it. You're, you're healthy, you're very fit, you exercise regularly, you eat well. All of those have definitely, without a doubt, made you recover better, quicker, more efficiently. And it's something that we definitely need to look into more, you know, and Absolutely, advocate yeah. more to anybody who's had a breast cancer treatment. They yeah. need to be able to to learn about these things. Because again, I, I don't think we talk about, about these things hardly enough, really. Yeah. So you recovered from these massive, mm. massive surgeries. So that was that was fine. And you kind of continued on with, you know, recovering and continued yeah. with your life. Yeah, and then so, yeah. what happened last year? Oh yeah, so last year, um, I mean, yeah, I had I had around about three years of everything seems to be okay. So actually, in two thousand and nineteen, it wasn't last year, two thousand and nineteen. So we've got two stories to tell you. Two thousand and nineteen, oh. I actually had reconstruction. I had some modifications to my reconstruction. 
because my left breast was quite a bit bigger than the right breast. And the um, oncoplastic surgeon who I knew who'd done, she was to do with the um, the cardiothoracic surgeon because she had a part to play as well because mm. I had a an LD flap. She needed to kind of move that out of the way when they were doing the sternum surgery. Right. Um, she said to me, oh, Joe, come back. I can do some work if you want. And I was like, oh, no, I don't want anything done. Anyway, probably three years after, I kind of decided, so this was 2019, I thought I'm going to take her up on that offer. You know, it, it's getting to a point where bras don't fit me properly. You know, it, it, it's kind of causing me a bit of a, you know, lopsided kind of issue. So she she was happy, very, very happy to do surgery on women, which I was quite surprised at because I was like, yeah, but I've got second with breast cancer. Yes, mm. that doesn't really mean anything to me. You know, I will still do surgery if it's going to give you good quality of life. And I thought that was really refreshing mm. for somebody to kind of say. So I went ahead with this surgery in 2019. So I had a, an uplift and I had lipo filling. Um, right. I won't, I won't, I won't share the pictures of the bruises. But <laughs> if anybody wants to see, they can see it on my blog. <laughs> wow! So the bruising was, from your tummy. Oh yeah, I literally That's looked what... like I had a pair of shorts on. They were wow. that blue from the waist down. <laughs> so presumably, they um, for for those who don't know what lipo filling is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, but. Presumably they took fat from around your tummy area yeah. and then injected it into your yeah. reconstructed breast. Is that right? Yeah, it was in the right breast, yeah. So she did an uplift on the left and lipo right. filled on the right. Go and have a look at the, at the bruising and you'll think, oh my goodness, <laughs> no way. And even the breast area, there wasn't a problem at all. Um, oh, apart from a week later, I coughed and one of the little blood vessels burst and I ended oh, up with no. a big... so you had a hematoma yeah massive yeah so I had to have surgery again anyway <laughs> fast forwarding from that so that that was okay I recovered from that and right. then in 2020 so under lockdown um, I knew that there was a problem with a metatastinal node because it showed up after I'd had I actually had a car accident early on and this was to do with a, oh, right. a stationary car in the middle of three lanes which wasn't indicated with any sign yeah so, okay well that's a different story isn't it it's another I mean... story yeah I won't <laughs> tell you now but yeah so that was horrendous um anyway ended up having to go to hospital because the seatbelt had pulled on I've got a portacath and okay. it had pulled and bruised all the side of my neck and everything and it I was just really worried about that so it did show up with a metatastinal node again that I knew that I had that had, had been, well, it was there from surgery. So, um, so that's in your I, chest? In the chest, yeah. Yeah, okay. So what happened then was we knew that we needed like a scan and oncology said, yeah, we'll do another scan and let's see if it's changed and da, 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 da. And kind of things went on and then lockdown happened. So in March and then um, on the off chance, my oncologist also said, Oh, and while you're having a scan, I think you should have an MR, brain MRI. It's like, okay, but I've got no symptoms. Um, mm. Why are you saying that? Oh, well, we'll just do one anyway. So it was an incidental scan that on the 2nd of April, I had this scan and um, waited and waited and thought, why is somebody not coming down to check this? Because they said, oh, we just need you to sit over there and somebody 
just needs to check it. And then three quarters of an hour later, it was, oh, we still haven't got anything. I think we're going to ring your oncologist. And that was like, you might as well have just said, yeah, you've got you've got a brain, mate. Um, sat me in a side room. Do you want a cup of tea? It's like, no, I don't want a cup mm. of tea. I knew what was coming. My oncologist came down and he sat across from me, two metres away, mask on, me with a mask on, and said, um, sorry, Joe, to tell you, but you've got a brain met, and it's just one, but it, and it's in the cerebellum, and, um, you know, we're going to have to get you to another hospital to see if they can possibly do SRS. Let's see what the MDT say, da 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 and I just sat there and cried. And he's just said, oh, well, I can't even come over and hug you because everybody's got COVID. Yeah, <laughs> and it was like, God. can't even touch you. Can't even do anything. I'm sorry. You're going to have to sit there and cry on your own. Like, it's been uh, absolutely oh, horrendous. Awful. Yeah, it was traumatic to say the least. Couldn't have a, you know, my husband was sat outside. He didn't even know about this at the time because I'd not even right. rang him. Just thought, well, there's no point in getting you worked up now while I'm sat here feeling like this, knowing what they're going to say. Actually, I, I did actually message a couple of friends and say, oh, <laughs> oh dear, I'll just say, mm. oh, dear. <laughs> I, I think things are going a bit pear-shaped. Um, I'll speak to you in a bit. Um, mm. So that was kind of that. And, um, yeah, so four weeks later I was there having um, SRS on my brain. I think it was yeah around about may time and what does yeah. that entail so they make a mask which i'd had one anyway because i had radiotherapy on a shoulder and they, they made a similar kind of thing when i had um mets in the shoulder oh, i didn't tell you about that one as well just some small <laughs> small mets in me in me humorous not funny <laughs> gosh that's wow. my joke that's Boom. a joke <laughs> <laughs> it fell on flat ears tasha <laughs> Fell on flat ears there uh, 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 in the humorous, not funny. <laughs> yeah, so I had I had a, a mask for that, so I knew what was entailed. So they, they, what they do is they do um, they do various scans and they kind of make a three D picture of what they're looking at in your brain, um, yeah. so that they can target it in a in a three D way. So they then make a mask so that your head is as perfectly as still as possible, so you literally cannot move. They pin you down in this mask and hold you there. And it was probably about 35 minutes, something like that. And this machine just kind of moves and you can't really even open your eyes because the mask is that tight on your face. And this machine just kind of circles your head and then zaps it, you know, mm. every so often, you know, and, and obviously targets it in a way that it will do a 3D kind of zapping of it. So, and then, you you know, you're on steroids for about a week. So you start steroids, I think it's the day before, on them okay. for about eight days. Yeah, hit awful things. Steroids are horrible. They're, I think they're yeah. worse than... Myobraxin, I didn't even have to have steroids on that. Right. Uh, and But steroids, when I had SRS, were the worst. They were, they How were did it affect things. you, apart from your appetite? A appetite, but up, you know, you're kind of hyper- yeah. You know, I mean, I'm hyper anyway, but it just made me even more hyper. You know, I couldn't really sleep, sweating, right. you know, um, 
yeah, just just not not a nice thing to to have these this medication. Anyway, you kind of tail off and and you kind of all right. So so and yeah, how many sessions? Just one. Just the so one. So literally one. Yeah, yeah. So it lasted, like I say, it lasted about thirty five minutes, forty minutes, something like that, and it right. just goes around and targets it. So it was it was a small about one point two centimeters, the size of it. Right. Um, and in the cerebellum, so it was in the lower. So if what it did affect was my balance, and I put it down to letrozole. So letrozole does can make you unbalanced, and I just put it down to that. So uh, in hindsight, because you said you know you didn't have any symptoms, but now knowing where the the, yeah. the met was, because it's in the cerebellum, which does affect your balance. Yeah, you think you did have symptoms of yeah. of unsteadiness on your feet. Yeah, definitely. I just thought it was, you know, a menopausal kind of unbalanced, head's not really. I mean, I was okay. But, you know, when you have a brain metastasis, people automatically think the the complete worst again. You know, yeah. getting secondary breast cancer is bad enough. But getting secondary breast cancer in your brain, oh, my God, I'm dead again. Mm. You know, it, it's just awful. And, and when I wrote, I had to, what, what I actually did was I kept it quiet to, I didn't share it on social media. I didn't share it with my kids. I've got two children who were, you know, teenagers, 14 and 16. And last year, I decided that I was going to keep it all quiet because we were under lockdown. Yes. And I got away with doing what I needed to do. I couldn't drive. So that was it. I couldn't drive. License. You've got to hand it in. You can't drive as soon as you're, you know, literally my, my oncologist is there telling me and said, oh, by the way, have you come in your car because you can't drive it back? Right. So, but thankfully my husband had brought me and we were under lockdown. So he was able to take me to appointments and various things. And I told little white lies to the kids, you know, oh, mm. mum's just going for a, oh, I've got another blood test. Oh, I don't know what they're doing, but it's just another blood test you know, just so that I could cope with this on my own, me and husband together, and, um, you know, deal with it. And then hopefully, when the scan comes, I can tell them then that, you know, well, but this is what's happened. But the good news is that it treated it. And, you know, it's nowhere else, hopefully, touch wood. And how are you now? So I've had three scans um, I had a recent brain scan and it's it's stable at the moment, okay. you know. I mean, there there was some cystic fluid, which I talked to some um some people at Action Radiotherapy, and they actually said that it's quite normal for like a you know, a fluid sac to still be there, but you know, it it probably will be stable and, and radiotherapy is still working. So it may take a while for this to kind of calm down anyway. But, you know, again, I wanted to write a blog about it so that people could see that and understand that I've not changed. I am the, still the same person. I can still do the same things that I used to do. It's just the fact that, the, you know, I've got this metastatic disease in my brain, which has been treated, but I've had my driving license taken away from me. So that's the isolation that I had I can't drive anywhere I can't do the you know I'm, I'm a very independent person 
and I can't do the things that I normally do, drive myself to treatment, take myself mm. to scans. I don't need someone holding my hand. You know, I can do all these things. But now I've got to get somebody to take me to, even the kids, you know, I had to take my son to the doctor this morning. I had to ring my sister. Can you take me? You know, it's all these added things that you then can't do because you've had that, you know, independence taken away from now I can't drive at the moment. Hopefully I'll get my driving license back. I'm, I'm on the ball. I'm going to be ringing the DVLA next week. <laughs> <laughs> do you think it's hopeful? Well, when I when I spoke to the the oncologist at, at, at Salford who did the um, who planned all the SRS, she said it could be a year or it could be two. So I'm ho- I'm hoping that it's just a year. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of soonish, right? It's soon, yeah, yeah, it's soon. So <laughs> so yeah, I'm, yeah, so that's why I'm on the ball with it. Okay, yeah. well, good luck with that because oh, I hope thank we get, you. I hope I hope because it must be yeah. really really tough not being able to drive. You know, it is. But things actually, you take for granted, it, you can't do. Yeah, yeah, you you do take it for granted. But actually, being under lockdown, it's it's kind of done me a favour because my husband was then on furlough. He was at home. He was able to take me anywhere. So the pandemic has done me really a favour, and it's not even finish yet and can imagine if I got it back in April that'd be great wouldn't it it'd, it'd be a lockdown and oh just deal with it it'll be good just timing with a brain net yeah and um, then I, I did have surgery as well on my axilla under lockdown yeah. on the left side yes so I found that that yeah so I had a, a, a numerous nodes on the left side that were that that I did have a problem with so it right. ended up around about 17 out of 22 were metastatic. So, um, yeah, I had, had surgery um, oh. in, in June last year. That that was a big problem as well because I ended up then with a oh a, a huge um, seroma, which was like mm. half a litre under my arm, which was being drained off, and then it turned into a hematoma. So four and a half months of problems. You and had then, a pretty eventful yeah. year last year, then, yeah. haven't you? Yeah, just a bit. Yeah, with a pandemic. With a mm. pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Just listening to your story, it's just absolutely incredible. And you've gone through your primary diagnosis, then you set up the your website yeah. to help people. Then you know you got your secondary diagnosis, and obviously you set up also met up website, and you know you're very very active and you know a passionate advocate to to raise awareness about metastatic breast cancer or secondary yeah. breast cancer yeah. do you want to talk about that a little bit yeah so so right about four years ago um again it was through a, um one of the advocates over in america beth caldwell who sadly two years later died of of metastatic breast cancer but she started off met up over in america and that was created because um it was like that so they were talking about AIDS activism and the issues around about around AIDS and what had happened and how they mm. were ignored. And, you know, people weren't aware of it. They didn't really understand it. That's how MetUp cr- was created. Um, and then I'd spoke to, to Beth and said, well, it's great that you've got that over there, but actually we need something like this over here in the UK because we feel that there needs to be that advocacy work that's done and the push for change um so she said that's brilliant and I actually met her twice and so she came over and and we I created 
Met Up UK with her, you know, um, her guidance. And um, yeah, so it's been going for about four years, but only really the past, I'd say, year and a half that we, well, probably two years, really, that we've got more and more active and we're gaining more and more members because we are we are kind of pushing the, you know, the policy issues, we're pushing charities. We are quite fierce advocates, you know, and we we, we need to, to, to be like that because we've got to push for change. We see things that don't happen and, and not just not happen, they don't happen quick enough, you know, and when you've got a two to three year life expectancy, then I think it's massively important that, you know, there's change around things. Data and statistics, I mean, I'd been talking uh, and went to Parliament and, and talked to uh, you know the shadow health secretary around about six or seven years ago about data and statistics and the fact that for secondary breast cancer in the UK we are not counted and only recently the APPGBC have just held a meeting with other other stakeholders about collecting data. We were part of um, there are n- a n- numerous Metal UK advocates part of. Breast Cancer Now and their secondary breast cancer group that they had about two years ago. And again, we were looking at issues to do with data and statistics and clinical nurse specialists. You Mm. know, there aren't enough clinical nurse specialists. But all these things have been talked about and reported and surveyed and, you know, absolutely to death. And it's like, but why is it not implemented? So, the one thing that I always say is we want action and we want, we want accountability. And that's what isn't happening. And that's what we kind of push for, that people are, you know, make this action happen. And there is some accountability somewhere. Somebody's got to be responsible for not implementing, collecting data, which is mandatory. And it's mm. shocking that we're in 2021 and I, I kind of listened to, you know, last year, the pandemic. I was like living in a parallel universe because I'd sit there and listen to, oh, we don't collect data in care homes. Like, yeah, oh, I'm over here and I'm a secondary breast cancer patient. You don't collect data about me. You know, Mm. and it was all these things that, that were happening that were exactly the same. How can we, you know, develop things better, a better effective uh, vaccine if we don't have all this information about people you know and it's exactly the same for secondary breast cancer how can they you know develop better clinical trials better research have enough clinical nurse specialists all these things you've got to have the data behind it so these are the things that we advocate for and these are the things that we kind of push and it, it does kind of cross over with ABCD with the infographics awareness was a big issue you know, and, and because I've got now on to the issue with end of treatment summary reports, the whole of Wales are actually adopting the, the end of treatment summary reports. Oh, right. So, Great. so I, I was able to get that into the cancer strategy, literally as, as, as the transformation person manager in GM Cancer. I'd said to her, can I share this document with people? And she went, yes. So I literally <laughs> took it to Wales and I went, here you are, Wales. Here's a document. Do you think you're going to be able to use that? And they went, we're yeah. going to have it nationally. And that was in for, within 48 hours. Wow. So I'm trying to work with Northern Ireland to try and get it in Northern Ireland. 
I've actually asked um, Scotland as well. So I've been in, in touch with the, the, the cancer strategy up there and uh, whether they can have the end of treatment summary report up there because it ticks boxes and it, it's a good document to have, you know, as a as a summary report. And honestly, I think, you know, you're doing an amazing job and it's so, so important, as you said, to educate policymakers. And I think yeah. this is what you have on your website, you know, yeah. educating policymakers, making sure that there's equal access to clinical yeah. trials is so, so important and to make people understand what a clinical trial is. Yeah. where to go and find them because if you access them and you're if you're eligible because obviously there's so many criteria that yeah. you have to meet before you're eligible that's yeah. a, a you know complete minefield in itself Absolutely. but you know if you if you can access it then you're going to potentially benefit from new innovative drugs so all of yeah. this stuff is so so important for anybody out there who who don't know about Metup UK definitely visit the website oh thank you Thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's really it, it, good. it is, and I, I'm I'm really proud of the people who are involved in it. You know, we're all really passionate advocates, and we we just want to make change for other people. That's all we want. You know, some of these things will not help us, but hopefully, in the future, it'll help other people. So, your work is it's so important. You also have a book, don't you? Yeah, tell us about the book because it's a book of stories that you yeah yeah you, yeah you, you collected. So, I, I, again, I met this chap who was head and neck cancer. And, and again, because I crossed over into that area, um, I met this chap over at ESMO, European Society of Cancer um, Medical Oncology, mm. um, over in, I think it was in Madrid at the time. And I went over there as an advocate. So I'd listened to, to this chap talking and um, he said that he created this book. And we, we actually got talking for a, a number of months after and he, he showed me the book that he created and he said, Joe, you could do that. I don't want to, I don't want to write a book. No, it'll be about stories. So literally what I was doing was gathering stories from other patients and, um, you know, compiling these in a book. But what I was trying to do was, was have it from, you know, a chronological kind of breast checking. You find a lump, um, mammograms you know, being diagnosed with primary breast cancer and then, you know, infographics and, you know, all these are the things that are interdispersed with it, but also patient stories. So there's around about, I think it's about 28 patient stories in there. So right. what I try, what, I, what I'm giving is, because again, this, this was something that I always found with charities. They do a lot of separating. They don't have the people in the same room together. They don't even like to have conferences together. The primary patients are, you know, um, kind of segregated from secondary patients because it's scary. And mm. you know what? I think it's really important. And this is what I've tried to do with a lot of the stuff that, that I do, that people do talk together because, yes, it's scary. But you know what? You may need that person one day to talk to because that could be you. There's a possibility that you can develop secondary breast cancer hopefully you don't and hopefully you're around about the 70 percent or whatever the number is that don't develop the disease but you don't want to be that 30 percent but if you are mm. at least you know somebody so so yeah the stories were you know I'd have a primary secondary primary secondary all the way throughout the book to try and share all the different stories uh, all, very diverse as well got a man in there as well different yeah. reconstruction, different type of people, younger, older, 
whatever it was, secondary disease, primary disease, and then have pieces from oncologists, radio, radiologists, um, clinical trials, um, you know, and then fear of cancer return and, and all that kind of information. And then information about, because I do a retreat as well, so a, a, an exercise motivational retreat right. for cancer patients. Brilliant. Um, that's also in there as well. So, you know, again, and it, it's giving information to people about weekends that they can go on and free kind of days or weekends or whatever other charities give them. Because I don't think patients know about all that side of it. You know, they just see information. They don't actually see that, well, actually, there's somebody who does um, fly fishing for Mm. breast cancer patients. Mm. You know, patients can go and have a weekend, like I say, on my retreat, which is motivational exercise or, or other kind of things that they want to do. And again, it's just supporting patients with with this information um, that can be used in clinics. So I need to send you some of them, Tasha. Oh yes, please. Definitely. I yeah, need to no, get. Definitely. I need to get your address. <laughs> I'll give it to you well, after you, the show. <laughs> yeah, you, you can actually download it for free if you go on to um, www.abcdiagnosis.co.uk. So that's my after breast cancer diagnosis website. If you go on there and then there is a link on um, on the drop down, which actually says book. Um, so if you if you go on there and you can either order one, um, but you all you'd pay for is postage and packing. Right. Or you can order, order one or two or you can download it for free as an ebook with clinical people. You can just ask me for four books and, and I can get them sent out. May I don't ask, personally may send them. But book, please. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, definitely. I'll I'll send you some. Um, yeah. You'll have to tell me after. I will. I yeah. will. I mean, sharing stories is so important, isn't it? Massively. And, um, you know, sharing experiences, sharing stories, telling our own personal stories, and yeah. because it it helps people not to feel alone. It helps yeah. people to to learn from other people's experiences, to give people hope, hope. and yeah. and just a feeling of of a of a community i'm assuming that is how social media has impacted breast cancer community would you say absolutely yeah definitely um i mean you know that if you if you even go on to hashtag breast cancer or hashtag secondary breast cancer you will find communities of people there and all across the world you know you can be talking to somebody over in australia and you know i regularly do that with people um and it's amazing the connections what you make and that's I I am a I mean I don't know whether you probably have guessed this but I am a big networker and that that's kind of what I do and I've always done it because I'm a big communicator as well there's nothing worse for me somebody not communicating and I find communication is just a way to obviously get messages out support yourself support other people you know, and it and it helps in so many ways to have that community there. You can literally put a message on there and say, has anybody had XYZ surgery or whatever treatment? And people will come back to you. And yeah. that's how amazing Twitter is. You know, I mean, Facebook is, is a different kind of kettle of fish. You've still got a similar kind of thing. I mean, and people have pages. I've got a MetUp UK page. I've got an ABCD page. But... I don't really chit chat on there. 
not lots, you know, people will ask things and I will talk to them. But on Twitter, it's basically a conversation. It's like what we're doing now, but on, you know, social media. We we are in a way lucky to be living in an age where social media is around. And, you know, to be fair, social media hasn't been around for that long. So no. people who, you know, were diagnosed with breast cancer outside of the social media years would have found it really, really difficult to find a community. But, you know, in this day and age, the benefits of social media, if it's used correctly and purposefully and intentionally, yes. can be so, so powerful. And, you know, I'm grateful for social media because that's how you and I connected. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've, yeah. You know we haven't met in person, um, no. but we're having this conversation and that's purely down to social media um, yeah. where you can create really meaningful connections and relationships. Oh, it's, honestly, it's amazing. I really, really love, uh, especially Twitter. Um, I, I just think it's a great tool, you know, and to to connect with other people. It, it is, it, you know, I've made I've made friends for life on there, yeah. and that that that's the amazing thing. Definitely, for those you know who haven't connected with uh, Joe, because you're very very active on Twitter. Definitely connect with connect with Joe on Twitter. But um, I Joe, might you regret know- that. <laughs> No, trust me, guys, you, you won't regret it. No, Joe's amazing. <laughs> Joe, um, you yeah. know, we've had such a fantastic conversation. Oh, Thank you so it's much. It's been a for... long time. I don't know. Well, I'm you know. Sorry. I've... We've no, just you... chatted away, haven't we? <laughs> have you finished your cup of tea? Yes. Yes, you have. Well, at least <laughs> you managed to have your tea. But I did. Absolutely fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank people... you for yours, Tasha. Oh, it's a pleasure. If Thank people you want for to... inviting me again. Anytime. If you want people to connect with you, where yeah. should they go? Where should they find you? Yeah, so on Twitter, it's at ABC Diagnosis. Um, Facebook is the same. Um, website, www.abcdiagnosis.co.uk. Metup is at metupuk.org. And that's on Twitter. And then the website is www.metupuk.org.uk. And again, um, Metup UK is on um, on Facebook as well. So yeah, you can connect with us on all uh, you know on on all those platforms. Great, that's fantastic. And what I'll do, I'll um, put all of those links in the show notes as well, so people can connect with you um, via you know whichever platform that they would like. So Joe, thank you so much once again. Really appreciate your time. It's been a fantastic conversation and I've enjoyed it very, very oh, much. And, you know, I I've hope at some point. enjoyed po- it too. And some point, I hope we can meet up face to face. That'd be fantastic. Oh, that would be amazing. Thank you so much, Joe. Oh, take care, Tasha. Thank take you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Wow, what an amazing conversation. Thank you so much to Joe Taylor once again. And for those who haven't connected with her, I would definitely recommend you do so. She's extremely active in the breast cancer community and also very active on Twitter. You can find Joe on Twitter at ABC Diagnosis. Her website is www.abcdiagnosis.co.uk and her Facebook page is at ABC Diagnosis. For Metup UK, you can connect on Twitter at metupuk.org. The website is www.metupuk.org.uk and you can also find them on Facebook.
I will leave all of these links in the show notes, which you can find at www.mybreastmyhealth.com forward slash episode 30. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And if you are a loyal listener, I hope you have been enjoying all the other episodes. If you would like to connect with me, you can DM me on Instagram. That would be fantastic. You can find me at Dr. Tasha G. So that's D-R Tasha G. And yeah, you can connect with me. You can tell me what you like about the show, who you would like me to um, invite to interview and have a chat with. And if you would like me to cover any other certain topics that is of interest, then do let me know as well. For the time being, however, I hope you stay safe and stay well, and I'll see you in the next episode. Take care. Bye.